church. Today our reading will be coming from Acts chapter 1, beginning from verse 12. This can be found on page 769 of the provided church Bibles. Acts chapter 1, beginning from verse 12. It reads as follows. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in his ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, and so they called the field in their language, Kaldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two men you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much indeed. Well, do keep uh, that passage open in front of you, and uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. The psalmist says, 
Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray this morning, Father, that you would shine your word brightly into the darkness that surrounds us, that we might see Jesus more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. We ask it in his name. Amen. I wonder whether from time to time you find yourself asking, well, if God is sovereign, why doesn't he actually stop some of the bad things happening in our world? Uh, This past week, uh, there was a memorial service for Tim Keller. Uh, He was the pastor of a large church in Manhattan, And God gave Tim Keller, I think, a unique gift for speaking Christian truth to people both inside and outside the church. And in recent years, he was reaching more people for Jesus than ever before. And yet a few weeks ago, he died of pancreatic cancer. Uh, He wasn't especially old. Why didn't God prevent that from happening? And we could think of lots of examples like that. Perhaps uh, some Christian we know is going through a terrible time of loss or pain and uh, God works through that circumstance for good. Yes, he does. But why didn't God prevent the loss and the pain? Uh, Were the loss and the pain really necessary? Or perhaps somebody is going through a period of intense opposition for their faith. They're learning a great deal about God. Uh, They're learning to trust him more. They're praying more. But why doesn't God remove the opposition and make their Christian life trouble-free? Now, one way to cope with that question is to be a pessimist. Uh, The pessimist assumes that life is generally terrible for Christians. It's always going to be terrible And so the pessimist says, well, you've just got to grit your teeth and wait till you get to heaven. Then there are other people who are optimists. They say, well, you know, God doesn't want you to suffer. He doesn't want you to be unhappy. Uh, He doesn't want anything to go wrong. He just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And you know perfectly well that if we put on a conference with that theme here in this church... The place will be packed and there'll be standing room only. But of course, it is a horribly misleading message. So when it comes to understanding why God sometimes permits very hard things into the lives of his people, neither the pessimist nor the optimist can help us. The only person who can help us is the biblical realist. The biblical realist rejoices in the sovereignty of God. He knows that God doesn't always prevent trouble. He knows that God sometimes does allow hard things to happen to us. But the biblical realist also knows that God provides what we need. Sometimes in the short term and always in the long term. The biblical realist knows that the world is not random. 
every single detail is always under God's sovereign control. So, in the words of Acts chapter 1, when the storm comes, the realist can say that what God is doing is necessary. We might not always understand it, we might not enjoy it, but as far as God is concerned, it's necessary. And then, the realist goes on to say, as we heard at the end of the reading, that now, because of what God has done, it's necessary for me to act in a certain way. Now that really is the thrust of our passage this morning. We're trying to understand why sometimes we say that what God has allowed to happen is necessary, and that now, as a result, it's necessary for you or for me to act in a particular way. That little phrase, it's necessary, is implied in verse 16. You might like to put your eye on it, because in verse 16, we're told that it was necessary for Judas to do what he did. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty extraordinary thought, isn't it? But Luke says that the scripture had to be fulfilled, which spoke about Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. It had to be fulfilled. It was necessary. Now look down to verse 21, where we're told that it's necessary now for Judas to be replaced. Now it's impossible, isn't it? to think of someone doing something worse than what Judas did. Uh, of course, you know, we shudder at some of the other evils in the world. We think of the horrors of the apartheid regime in this country, the appalling suffering that it caused. That was a very great evil. But on the cosmic scale, to turn against your maker and to try and eliminate your maker well, that's a horrific thing. So why didn't God prevent it from happening? Why did God permit that? Well, that's the issue in Acts chapter 1. Why did Jesus, who's so wise, so powerful, pick Judas to serve in his ministry team? We're going to think about that under three headings. First, the word of God to us. Then we're going to think about the plan of God for us. And then lastly, we're going to look at the rule of God over us. So firstly, the word of God to us. Now the reason I mention this is that we're looking at a portion of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a message to us. We might not listen. We might close the book, we might never read it, but Acts is a message to us. And not only is Acts a message to us, but Acts chapter 1 says that God had given a particular message through the Old Testament, which the apostles heard and paid attention to. So think about it just for a moment. Why have we gathered here this morning? Well, we've gathered because the God of the Bible is a speaking God. And we've gathered to listen to his word and to respond to his word and to put it into practice. But why would we want to do that? 
Well, think for a moment of the world as a huge movie set. Uh, we've all been given roles in God's movie. And uh, what God has given to us in his word is the script. It is the script that explains the world. Uh, when I first became a Christian and began to read the Bible seriously, it was an enormous relief to me to see that the Bible really did explain things about myself and the world around me that had always been a complete mystery to me before. Now, of course, people can ignore the script, but then they live their entire lives missing the plot. And what we're trying to do when we gather together on Sundays is to learn from the script in order to understand our role in the world. Now, does that sound like a good use of your time? I think it does. So you see, we're not coming here on Sundays because we're members of some kind of eccentric society. Uh, we're not a book club. We're not a historical society. No, we've come here to study the script of God's movie because each one of us has an important role in it. Now, armed with that, Luke wrote the book of Acts under the direction of God. And in chapter 1, he tells us two things that took place between the resurrection and the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. If you tot it up, there were 50 days between the resurrection of Jesus and Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. And the first of those two things, as we saw last week, was that Jesus instructed his disciples to be witnesses to the world. And the second thing, which we find this morning, is that the disciples were to prepare themselves to be a group of 12 for their witness to the world. Now, my very dear friends, I hope you know that absolutely nothing in the Bible is random. Uh, and again and again, Luke gives us twosomes in the book of Acts. You're going to see this several times in the coming weeks. And I do hope that uh, as Bible readers, you are in the habit of asking not just what does the text say, but why does it say it? Because that's actually a much more interesting question. So why has Luke given us these two stories? Um, instructions to the disciples about witnessing and then another disciple being added to the group. And then after Pentecost, why does Luke tell us two things? That the Spirit came and a man was healed. And I suspect the reason he did that was uh, because he wants us to know that new life came into the church with the Spirit and that one day that new life is going to be a perfect new creation. And the man who was healed is a preview of that perfect new creation. And then a little bit later, we find that the church is persecuted, but also rejoicing. So once again, two things. And that's always been the mark of the church, hasn't it? Suffering, but also rejoicing. And then after that, we read that uh, people in the church shared their property 
But then one particular couple held back deceitfully. And there's another twosome profiling the church down the ages, the godly and the ungodly side by side in the local church on Sunday morning. So Luke, you see, is putting forward a twosome again and again and again in order to give us a balanced perspective of the church in every age. Well, this word has come to us this morning, describing the way that the 11 became a 12. And they did it because the scriptures said to them, choose a 12. So you'll notice in verse 16 that Peter says to the believers, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. In other words, it was necessary for Judas to do what he did. Therefore, verse 21, it is necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So what the Apostle Peter is saying to the believers is this. We've got to put the word of God into practice. Judas must be replaced. Now, why does Peter say it? It's before the day of Pentecost. He seems to have plucked a couple of quotations out of the Old Testament. One of them's from Psalm 69, the other one's from Psalm 109. Why these two particular quotations? And, and why does he pick two quotations attributed to King David and now say that actually they're all about replacing Judas? Is that actually a legitimate use of those Old Testament passages? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I want to suggest to you that the answer probably lies in volume one of Luke's Gospel. Because last week, you may remember, we took a brief glimpse at Luke chapter 24, which records Jesus' final briefing to the disciples. And in that chapter, <clears throat> Luke says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then Jesus said, pay attention, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, I can't prove it to you, but I think it's highly likely that Jesus took these particular Psalms of David and he said to the disciples, I want you to understand that these Psalms ultimately apply to me and that Judas had to do his job and now Judas has to be replaced. So sketching in the background for you, the quote from Psalm 69 is all about bringing down one of David's enemies. And of course, in the gospel accounts, there is the bringing down of Jesus' great enemy, Judas, and he was brought down, wasn't he? And then the other quote from Psalm 109 is about an enemy of David being removed and replaced. And now the apostles are instructed 
to replace Judas. So I think that Peter came up with these quotes under the instruction of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 1, he reminds the other apostles and the church that it's time to put these scriptures into practice. And the main thing for us to get hold of this morning, here's the big thing, it is the essential and unavoidable fulfillment of God's word. Friends, one of the great privileges of being a Christian is to keep noticing how God's word had to happen. And you and I need to keep saying to ourselves, God said it had to happen, and it did. And then the other great thing about being a Christian is to notice what God says has to happen and to say to ourselves, God says that has to happen, let's go and do it. And I think that actually that's one of the marks of the stable, faithful, mature believer, that they keep on trusting in what God said had to happen and they keep on seeking to practice what God says has to happen. So, that's the first thing this morning. The word of God to us. Now, rather more briefly, the second thing this morning is the plan of God for us. Um, in Acts 1, what we see is the will of God, but we also see the will of Judas. So whose will is actually being done? I mean, here's Judas doing exactly what he wanted. Uh, he works out that he can get rid of Jesus. He works out that he can earn money for doing it, that he can buy a field. That's what he wanted to do. That was his treasure. He set his heart on buying a field, and he did it. Now, just as an aside, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but your treasure is your destination. What you treasure is where you end up. And for Judas, his treasure was a field. That's where he ended up. He ended up in the field. Now, we have two accounts of the death of Judas in the New Testament, the other one's in Matthew 27. And they complement one another. Some of the details on the surface look a little different. But the details that are different can be reconciled if we put the two accounts together and read them like this. That after Judas refused the money that he was given for betraying Jesus, the priests bought the field in Judas's name and on his behalf. And it was there that he hanged himself. Then, by the time that his body was discovered, it was no longer hanging. Rather, it had fallen to the ground where it split open. So it's a bit gory, it's a bit gruesome. But if you read those two accounts like that, they fit together quite well. But the point is this. Judas got what he wanted. He knew what he wanted to do, and he did it. He was planning to betray Jesus. That's what he did. And you see, his betrayal of Jesus 
shows you and I what sin is really capable of. Because, as someone has said, Good Friday is proof positive that given half a chance, a human will do away with their maker. So not only is Good Friday proof proof positive that God is merciful and gracious, but it is proof positive that we are sinful. But the interesting thing is that hand in hand with Judas' decision to do what he wanted to do, God did what he wanted to do. The sovereign hand of God was on everything. So it wasn't actually a mistake that Jesus chose Judas because Judas had a role to play in God's providence. God included Judas in his plan of salvation. He didn't prevent Judas from doing the evil that he did. He permitted him to do it. But then, out of the evil, God brought about his marvelous plan of salvation. So think about it. The completely obedient Jesus, being betrayed by the completely disobedient Judas for a completely disobedient world, produced God's plan of salvation. It was all under God's sovereign control. And Jesus, as you know, went to the cross. He took our penalty in order that he might offer to us his reward. So Jesus had to suffer. He chose to suffer. And Judas chose to betray him. And God, in his sovereignty, did exactly what he planned. Now, friends, these are, if you like, the two train tracks of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people. And these two train tracks are running right through the world. In this life, we don't always see how those two things connect, but one day we will understand how they work together to accomplish God's will. So I do hope that you're not embarrassed about the sovereignty of God. I hope you find great security in the knowledge that no detail in our lives is outside God's plan and providence. It is actually the bedrock of our security and of our joy as Christian people. So Spurgeon put it very well. He said this, quote, People say about a great event, what providence? But they miss what they think is the less important event. The dust in the air is as much steered by God as the planets in their orbit. There is as much providence in the creeping of a bug on a leaf as the march of an army to ravage a continent. Everything, the most minute as well as the most magnificent, is ordered by the Lord, whose kingdom rules over all, and no one even sleeps or wakes except by the decree of the Lord. Now, friends, this issue is not to make us either fearful or careless 
We're meant to say in response to this, God the Father knows exactly what he's doing and he is working all things for our good and our part is to seek his will and then to do it with all our heart. So please don't say, okay, well, I'm a puppet. Um, If God is sovereign, it doesn't matter what I do because it's going to happen anyway. Don't say that. That's fatalism. And don't say, I'm safe whatever I do because God is sovereign and he's worked out everything for me anyway because that's foolishness. Now we have to say God is sovereign and I'm to be responsible. And you and I have to walk on those two train tracks of God's sovereignty and my responsibility. So then the third thing and the last thing this morning is God's rule over us. So at this point in the story, Judas is gone. They need a 12th apostle. And you'll notice how the reading began this morning with the 11. So so why do they need a 12? Well, according to chapter 1, verse 22, they need a 12 in order to be a witness. You see, Israel was originally made up of 12 tribes. And uh, in the first instance... They need to be a 12 in order to witness to the Jews because that's where their ministry is going to begin, in Jerusalem. They need to show the Jews that they are 12 in number because they are, as it were, a new 12, a new Israel. Uh, Interestingly, there's a place in one of the Gospels where Jesus says to the apostles, you 12 will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, obviously, when Jesus said that, Jesus wasn't thinking of including Judas. So they need a replacement. And according to verse 22, they need someone who saw the resurrection. They need someone who could talk about that from personal experience. Now, you might say, well... That includes the Apostle Paul. He saw the risen Jesus. Why not Paul? But you'll notice they also say in verse 22 that they need someone who's been around from the beginning. Someone who was there from the time of John's ministry because John announced the coming of Jesus. And they need someone who was there when Jesus was taken up to heaven In other words, someone who saw the whole ministry of Jesus. Now that excludes Paul. He wasn't there for those two things. So Paul isn't capable of fulfilling what's required. So Peter's absolutely right to put in place a twelfth in accordance with the scriptures before the Holy Spirit comes and then moves them out as a witness to the world, as a group of 12. How will they do it? Well, this is very unusual. It's in the last verse of the passage this morning because they don't actually choose anybody, do they? They want the Lord to do the choosing. So just notice this little detail. In verse 2, chapter 1, it says that the Lord had chosen 
the apostles. Can you see that? And now, in verse 24, they ask him to choose the next apostle. So they propose two men. Uh, Both of them were there from the coming of Christ until the ascension. So both men are qualified. They're good candidates. And they pray, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen. And then they cast lots. This looks like a really, really odd thing to do, to cast lots for an apostle. Uh, It sort of looks a bit like gambling, doesn't it? I did a bit of digging around on this, and the man who helped me was Calvin, John Calvin, the reformer. He says, casting the lot means that the choice is not down to people. The choice lies with God. And if we want a scripture to back that up, Proverbs 16, verse 33, says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So it's not actually a matter of chance when they cast the lot or flip a coin. It's not a gamble. They believe God will make the choice. Now, if you're asking, should we be appointing another elder by casting the lots today? Is that how we should do things? The answer is no. Remember, this was before Pentecost, perhaps after Pentecost. The Holy Spirit might have told them to choose through a prophet. But this is before Pentecost, and they want to be responsible. And casting lots was their way of showing their trust in the sovereignty of God. And the lot falls to Matthias. He becomes the 12th apostle. So friends, this theme of God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, that is the theme of this little passage. What are you going to take away from it? It's a rather unusual passage. What are you going to take away and think about in the coming week? Let me suggest two things. First, I want to suggest that you keep rejoicing that God is sovereign and that God does what is necessary. Because, my friend, whatever's going on in your life, whatever circumstances you might be dealing with this morning, God hasn't missed it. He hasn't dropped the ball. You might say to yourself, why didn't God prevent this from happening? The simple fact is, God has permitted it. And God, the Father, who is wise and who is loving and powerful, has considered it to be necessary. So rejoice in his sovereignty. Keep reminding yourself that he is sovereign because ten minutes after you leave this building this morning, you'll forget it. Secondly, keep obeying the God who is sovereign over everything and who asks you to obey his word and to do what is necessary. Judas didn't obey, he disobeyed. But Peter and the other apostles attempted to obey the word of God. And you and I need to keep reminding ourselves to obey what the Bible says is necessary. Because you see, when you despair, very easy to stop trusting the sovereignty of God and to be disobedient. But if you are going to be a stable, responsible 
faithful believer, keep rejoicing in the sovereignty of God and keep seeking to be obedient. Because at the end of the day, your obedience is the measure of whether you trust God or not. And the famous chorus that you know so well has it absolutely right, doesn't it? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that you're working all things together for the good of those who love you. Help us, Father, to rejoice in your sovereignty, trusting that when we see Jesus face to face, we will understand why the hard things in our lives were necessary. And we pray that until that great day comes, you'll give us a burden to go on trusting you and obeying your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.